Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to uh, the book of Philippians for me in chapter 3. And today, uh, our passage of Scripture will be uh, verses 12 through 16 in Philippians chapter 3. And if you're taking notes, uh, the title of the sermon is Christ-likeness. And this is really part one of what will be two parts. I don't know when the second part will come about, because that just depends on how long it takes for me to come back and preach again. Um, but, the, so this is Christ-likeness, part one, and, and we'll be dealing with the pursuit. Okay, that's what we'll be talking about today. So Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16, follow along with me uh, in that passage of Scripture. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reading of your word, the, the hearing of the reading of your word. What a privilege that is, uh, that you speak to us through your word, God. And for this morning, we ask, God, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your word, that we would be uh, changed where we need to be changed. We'd be inspired and encouraged uh, in what we are to be doing as Christians. And so we trust you, God, to teach us through your spirit. We thank you for everyone here, for all those who may be watching uh, online later. Uh, Father, help us to live lives worthy of the gospel. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In the last section of Paul's letter, uh, we looked at his powerful expression of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Uh, he found that to be of great value, but he didn't always think that uh, before he was converted. He laid out a list uh, of all the things that he valued um, in life prior to uh, being born again, like being, being a Jew, um, following all the rules, rising in status, becoming a Pharisee, like the, the highest you could be in terms of an achievement for someone who, who would be seen as righteous before God. He was a persecutor of the church. He actually held that as, as valuable and as a, um, something positive. And if, if we were looking at all those things, as he looked at them, he was a righteous person indeed, if, if uh, that was the standard by which God measured righteousness. But it, it isn't, and it wasn't. But by the grace of God, Paul was born again in Christ Jesus. And he had his eyes open to his sin of self-righteousness. Casting aside everything else, all that he once held as valuable and used to sort of justify himself before God, uh, he he set that aside. He stopped stopped trusting in himself. And he came to know that what makes a person right in God's sight is that he be found in Jesus Christ. Not with a righteousness of his own, but with the righteousness that is from God. That is Christ's righteousness. To be clothed in his righteousness. Not only did he know Christ in terms of salvation, 
but he expressed the surpassing worth of continuing to know Christ, to know him more and pursuing that knowledge. Um, And he was willing to go through whatever God saw fit to allow him to go through in life. That's, that was his, his attitude. And now Paul's transitioning from there uh, to another topic. He's moved from talking about knowing Christ and receiving his righteousness for salvation and the resurrection to eternal life to talking about what goes on between that time and glorification. When Christ returns for his church, glorification being that day when, when Christ uh, transforms our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body for eternity. And the fact that he starts in verse 12 here by saying, not that I have already obtained this, after just finishing a sentence about attaining to the resurrection from the dead, doesn't necessarily tie those two subjects together. We can start a new subject this way, and we, we do it all the time, really. Uh, <clears throat> last year we went camping up in Bandon. We always go camping up in Bandon. And... Um, one of the days that we were there, we're all set up. We got lots of people there, and there's, I don't know, probably nine or ten teenage to early 20, 20s girls that go with us uh, because we, all, we have only girls, in case you didn't know that. Um, <laughs> so we're there, and we were kind of on this corner, and there's this teenage kid that comes around on his bike really fast, and he hits the front brakes and flies over the handlebars, and he very clearly dislocates his shoulder. And he's screaming and yelling, and of course, it's right in front of our campsite. So we're trying to help him, get him in a chair, um, trying to figure out where he's from, all the things you might do to try to help him, but he's in a lot of pain. I don't know if you've ever dislocated your shoulder, but uh, I haven't, but apparently it hurts really bad. And you could tell, he was screaming. He was in a lot of pain. And um, as we tried to figure out what was going on, my daughter Elizabeth comes over with a jug of red vines and says, do you want a red vine? It's like the last thing he wants or needs right then. No. Uh, now, I, I could have said this. I could have said uh, to, to Liz, um, that's not really what he needs right now. Not that it's not a kind gesture. Okay? Or I could have said the other way around. Not that it's not a kind gesture, but that's not really what he needs right now. Okay, we do that all the time. We, we switch those things around. Um, so unless you want to pack a wound with licorice, don't ask Liz for a first aid kit because you know what's in there. Okay? When you can see from those two examples that you could put the disclaimer either before the, the, senten- the beginning of the sentence or later on in the sentence, and it makes no difference. Um, and that's what Paul is doing here. He's starting the disclaim- with the disclaimer, and then he gets to what he's talking about in verse 12. Look at the verse, um, Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What is it? What is Paul talking about that he has not obtained or become perfect in? I think we need to answer that question early on so things make more sense. And he gets to that answer in verse 14, uh, but I don't want to wait till we get there to, to say what he's talking about. Uh, it's, it's the subject of the rest of this chapter and even the first verse of uh, chapter 4. Uh, and, and the subject is Christ-likeness. Okay, skip ahead and look at verse 14 with me. Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, so point one, if you're a note taker, point one is Christ-likeness is the prize. Okay, Christ-likeness is the prize. And that's Christ-likeness and, and everything that comes with it. Paul's a Christian. 
He's writing to Christians, i.e. people who are already saved. Okay, there's, there's no pressing on toward the goal of salvation because, one, that would indicate that you work for your salvation, and we know that's not true. And two, you don't press on toward what you already have attain, obtained. And what he's talking about here is something he's not obtained. He says that specifically. He, he cannot be talking about salvation. If it's not salvation, then what could he be pressing on toward? Well, you could say heaven itself or uh, heavenly rewards, both of which Christians will receive in glory. But Paul here is speaking of the other thing that will be true of us when Christ returns. John says it this way, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That's 1 John 3, 2. We shall be like who? Like Christ. Is this just a cause and effect? Is becoming like Christ an unintended a benefit of salvation? Or is this exactly what God has determined he will do for his children? The answer is written for us to know and to understand so that we don't have to wonder what God is up to. Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans when describing salvation and God's purpose in it. In Romans 8.29, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. This is describing a process. Salvation is not a process, but becoming Christ-like is. It is a process the Bible calls sanctification or growing in holiness. Jesus prayed that the Father would accomplish this by sanctifying us in the truth. We also call this maturing in Christ. The fact that we're not Christ-like is the very reason we needed Christ to come and live perfectly for us, so that he could die in our place and then grant us his righteousness. If something has to be conformed, then by definition, it is not the thing it needs to be. Not yet. God saves unchristlike sinners through Jesus Christ, and then he conforms those Christians to be like Christ. This is why we pray that God would make us more and more like his son. The question then is, what is Jesus like, and, and what, is, what does it mean for us to be like him? Jesus is perfect in every way, and completely without sin in thought, in word, and deed. Always doing the will of the Father perfectly. Does that describe you at this point? Not yet. The end of Christian maturing is Christ-likeness. And I'll tell you right now that none of us will reach the end of Christian maturity in our earthly lives. Only in glorification when our Lord returns and transforms us will we arrive at true Christ-likeness. While we're here, we're all somewhere on a scale of Christian maturity. Paul has probably been a Christian for about 30 years when he's writing this letter. Why is he not there yet? Why are you not there yet? Why am I not there yet? We still have unredeemed flesh. We still have an ongoing battle with sin. When Paul was an unbeliever, he thought he was perfect. And when he got saved, he found out he wasn't. And Paul talked about his struggle 
with sin in Romans chapter 7. In this passage of Scripture, you'll hear what some use to justify their belief that um, you can be sinless now by saying that Paul here is talking about his time before he was saved, talking about his life prior to salvation. But you simply have to read the passage to know that he's talking about himself in the present tense. Okay, so turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 7. And let's look at what Paul says about himself. Romans chapter 7, verses 18 through 24. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He has the desire to do right, but not the ability. He says he keeps on doing evil, though he wants to do good. And he has perfectly described our ongoing struggle with sin. If you think about your own life, this is what we struggle with. To say that we are Christ-like right now, would mean that we could never sin again because that is what Christ is like. He does not sin ever. Paul told Timothy this, and notice the present tense of the statement, 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Okay? He's already a Christian here when he's saying this. You could try and say you're sinless, But what are you relying on? Your own ability to see everything? You you cannot account for all of your sin. All we can do is make a feeble list of the sins we can think of that we didn't commit. The problem is we can't see even the ones that we do commit all the time. God makes provision for the Israelites to have, Brandon talked earlier about the Day of Atonement. Uh, and God makes a provision for the Israelites to have their unknown sins atoned for because they didn't know they sinned, but they're still guilty of the sin. But that indicates to us and tells us there are things we do we don't even know we sin. Can you honestly say that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? Before you answer that, I know that, I just want you to know that it means that you, you do it all the time. And you've done it perfectly all your life. That's the standard. Every second of every day of your entire life, have you loved the Lord your God that way? No. What about the sins you've committed against your brother or sister that they've decided to let go because they figured you didn't really know you did it and they're not holding bitterness against you and and they let it go? We don't even know all the ways that we sin. We say a harsh word or or some other thing that we do. We don't know that we've sinned against someone, but in their patience and uh, kindness, they, they overlook that. And, then, and they don't hold it against us. Now, if they were holding it against us, that would be a different story. Um, but 
But the point is, we can sin and not know we're doing it. So you can't say that you're sinless unless you can account for every single thing you ever do. Don't be deceived by this. How many of those sins are out there that you've committed? And the truth is, as Christians, we're only on some level, by God's grace, of sinning less than we were before. And don't be deceived by the lie that you can or have reached it in this life. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's absolutely a lie. And if you have believed it, that you are sinless, then you need to repent. Repent of that pride and ask God to forgive you for your arrogance. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And our Christian walk is not about six steps to reaching Christ-likeness. We need to stop trying to achieve it and just spend our lives working towards it. Besides, who's going to declare that you've made it? You? How will you know? Will someone else declare that you've made it? How will they know? Can they see your thoughts? Are they with you 24-7? I think you can see the problem with that. We know that we're to be growing in holiness. So let's focus on that. If our mindset is always that we're falling short, which we are, then we'll always seek to strive to grow. If you decide you've made it, then apparently you're all-knowing. And that's Paul's point here in verse 12. And then again in verse 13, he's not yet like Christ. This is a strong point that he has to make because there were those in his day and there's those in our day, for that matter, that believe or teach that you can be sinless in this life. That is not what this church believes or teaches, and that's not, frankly, what the Bible teaches. And if we're honest, we know we're not there yet. We are not there yet. So keeping Christ-likeness in mind, let's look again at verse 12 and see if it doesn't make a lot of sense. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The Greek word that has been translated as our word perfect uh, is important for us to understand. He uses the Greek teleao, uh, and this means to, to make perfect or complete. So, you know, my translation says perfect. Some of yours may say complete. That's what it means, to make perfect or complete. And it's from a root word that means end. In other words, he has not yet reached the end, which is Christ-likeness, where all of his thoughts are pure and pleasing to God, where all of his deeds are done in perfect sinlessness towards God and man. And where all of his words are right and true and honoring of God all the time. We must also notice that what Paul is really emphasizing here, and that is, uh, it's his discontentment with where he is in terms of Christ-likeness. And this is not, I don't mean discontentment in the whiny sort of, you know, sense that we, we think of. He's not whining or complaining about where he is. He's using his discontentment about where he is in Christ's likeness as a springboard for the action that he's talking about. In point number two, Christ's likeness is our singular focus. Christ's likeness is our singular focus. Becoming like Christ is the focus not only of this passage, but really the focus of all of a person's Christian life, our Christian walk. 
Okay, when the Bible talks about our walk, it's referring to the way in which we live our lives from day to day. And what is his attitude then? What does he do about the fact that he's not yet at the pinnacle of Christ-likeness? He says, but I press on to make it my own. Based on the word Paul used here for I press on, he's talking about running or following after something. More than that, it's the pursuit of something in eagerness. There's almost an aggressiveness to his desire for Christ-likeness. To what end? To make it his own. This phrase comes from one word that means to lay hold of, to catch, or to seize something. He even says that uh, what his motivation for this effort is, and in the reason he gives, he uses the same word to describe how Jesus pursues those that his Father has given him. Look at verse 13 now, Philippians 3.13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul restates his lack of being complete or perfected in terms of Christ's likeness in verse 13. Again, he's not talking about his salvation. He's reached that. He's there. That's already achieved by Christ, and it's settled. But the growth in Christ's likeness that God calls all Christians to is still lacking in Paul, as his own admission here proves. This is what he knows to be true about himself And by extension, he's teaching the church to think this way, to understand their own lives this way. He's not only restating the fact that he's not arrived at the destination of Christ-likeness yet, but he restates it in even stronger terms um, and what his response to that reality is about not being Christ-like yet. By this phrase, but one thing I do. The apostle here speaks of a singular focus. In the original Greek, the words I do are not there. But they were added by the translators because it's clearly the implication that Paul himself is focused this way. The Greek here simply says, but one thing. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing. One thing I do, one thing I am focused on. The one thing that I pursue as a Christian is spiritual perfection or completeness. I pursue Christ-likeness. I want to make it my own. I want to reach for it. I think of the the hungry cheetah. You've seen the video footage on the Discovery Channel. He's hungry. He's crouched in the grass. He's spotted the gazelle. He waits for the right moment with his eyes fixed, every muscle's tense, He begins to move through the grass really slow. His legs are moving, his body's moving, but the head and the eyes, if you've seen the video footage, they don't move. It's like their head and their eyes are tied down to an invisible board or something. But the body can move while that head just stays focused in one direction. Then he explodes towards the target, his muscles and body moving and legs driving and propelling him forward in pursuit even turning on a dime with every zig and zag of the gazelle. But all the while, that head and those eyes are fixed. They're glued to the target until finally he overtakes and lays hold of it. There's only one thing the cheetah wants. 
Nothing else will distract him or knock him off course in his relentless pursuit of this one thing. And that's what Paul's describing. His eyes are fixed on Christ. Like a hunter looking through a scope at a deer, he doesn't see the bushes and the trees and the rocks or the ground or the sky around, only what's in the scope which is pointed at the target. Are you focused in this way on growing in Christ-likeness? Ask yourself if this describes your life in any way. Paul's point is not so the church would only know that this is his focus, but so that they can change if they need to, which they do, and focus on the same thing. Scripture tells you, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Proverbs 4, 25 through 27. What keeps us from this kind of focus? What keeps us from it? How many of us are bogged down by ongoing sin? Are you paralyzed by what you've done or said or thought in life, in the past? Forgetting that as a Christian, your sins are forgiven. Christ paid for those sins. This is not to say that you shouldn't confess your sin to God in repentance or to someone else that you've sinned against. But are you spiritually stagnant for lack of prayer and lack of Bible study? Here's an example Pastor Brandon has been saying. If, if you're behind in the Bible reading plan that we're all doing as a church together, just start where we are now. But what do we do? We, we tend to say, ah, I'm, just, I'm so far behind. There's no point in, in, in starting here. You're focused on what is in the past, and it's halting your progress. This brings us to what Paul teaches the church about how to stay focused. He has a proper outlook on what's in the past. Look at his next words and what he says uh, does about not being at the goal line of Christ-likeness. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. What lies behind? Everything that's already happened. This is not just about past sins, though it does include them. This is not even a, uh, about only bad or negative things in your life, though they are also included. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What lies behind can also be the good things that you may have done. When we look at our past spiritual growth or our ministry goals reached, even those times we've been really focused on uh, tightly on prayer and scripture reading, we can be distracted by those things as well. Yes, they were good things, but when we focus on those things and as, a, as an achievement, how easy is it to begin to believe that we've arrived? The result of that can be to slack off or slow down or let down your guard. It's like the kickoff returner who's, who's run the ball, the football back 99 yards but before he crosses the goal line in his pride or apathy, he slows down, begins to celebrate, loosens his grip on the ball, or maybe even holds it out in celebration, only to have the ball knocked from his hand by the opposing player that he didn't know was there, that opposing player who didn't lose his focus. 
and overtook him and prevented him from scoring. So Paul says he forgets what lies behind and he replaces uh, that with a focus, uh, replaces the focus on the past with an all-out push toward what lies ahead. He said he was straining forward, also translated as stretching or reaching you might have in your Bibles. The picture here is that of the sprinter who's constantly moving toward the finish line, and when he nears the ribbon, he stretches out his chest, strains forward to get there even before his legs can pull him across the line. This is a picture of tremendous effort. Effort, straining for what is forward or what lies ahead. Why is it so much effort? Because everything in this fallen world and your flesh wants to pull you in another direction. When we unplug from Christian fellowship and from prayer and Bible study and whatever, for whatever the reason might be, we become more vulnerable to spiritual laziness and miss out on the blessing of the growth toward what lies ahead. What is it then that lies ahead? It's the day when we shall be like him. Christian, there is coming a day when you will no longer sin or be sinned against. But that day is not here yet. It awaits us when our Lord comes back, takes us to be with him. But we don't just sit back and wait for it. We participate in the work that the Holy Spirit is working in us. Paul had said earlier in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And his good pleasure is that you are conformed to the image of his Son. Now we find ourselves back in verse 14. Paul repeating his resolve to press on toward the goal. And what is the goal? The return of our King. What is the prize to be like our King? Philippians 3.14 again. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The prize is the purpose for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The word translated as upward, or maybe in your Bibles as the high calling or the heavenly calling. Literally, this word means above. The point here is that this call is both from heaven to heaven. It is about the origins of the call and the location that the call takes you. This call of God is to the Christian, and though we are to be active and participating in our growth and apprehension of Christ-likeness, God is bringing us there. This is a word of the Spirit, uh, uh, sorry, a work of the Spirit in every believer, and it's a work that will not fail. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Again, notice from that verse that this transformation into the image of Christ is by the Spirit of the Lord. And it is a process. We are being transformed. This doesn't mean that the Spirit of God is somehow lacking in the ability to transform us immediately. This is because God has determined it's necessary that it be a process. 
The Bible tells us it, it builds character and steadfastness and maturity and faith. It is preparing us for eternity. And look now at our final, our last two verses and our last point. Point three, which is, it's the mindset of the mature. Okay, this is the mindset of the mature. Philippians 3, 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. You may have a translation here that uses the word perfect again, like it did in verse 12. It's the same word in two forms, but in context here it has more of the idea of maturity. First, notice that Paul puts himself and others in the church in this category with the use of the adjective form of the Greek word. Where in the verb form used in verse 12, he excluded himself from having reached it, having reached perfection. Again, it's important for us to know that when he talks here about perfect or mature, he's talking about two things that are true. Those of us who are mature are Christians. Our standing before God is perfect in Christ's righteousness. It's done as a Christian. He's also indicating that Christians come in all stages of maturity in their process of sanctification. The teaching here is that the mature Christian will think this way about Christ-likeness. However good at it they are, they know they have, they know and have the attitude that it's what their focus as Christians should be. There's no other focus. Not our jobs, not our retirement, not our looks, not our social media status, not our money, not our comfort, not our health, not our marriage, not our children, not the virus, not America, not our rights, not politics. politics. The list goes on. We need to realize that everything is to be secondary to the pursuit of Christ-likeness for the Christian. Yeah, but those other things are important too, aren't they? Well, sure. But if you're focused on growing in Christ-likeness, growing in Christian maturity, all those things, or your thoughts about all those things, would begin to conform more and more to God's design. If you were more like Christ, you would be more loving to your spouse. If you're more like Christ, you'll do your job as unto the Lord. All those things that... uh, if you're, if you're more like Christ, you'll endure suffering with a renewed sense of praise and worship toward God. If you were more like Christ, you would be sinning less. Everything would be handled better and understood better if we were more like Christ. It is a work. It is labor. It's a race. It's a battle to be more Christ-like. But that's the biblical endeavor for Christians. Paul is teaching it here like he did it uh, with the Colossians. He made it clear to them that maturity in Christ is the goal. Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. If you are a Christian and you don't think this way or you think otherwise, Paul is saying you're wrong. But he's also saying, you'll come around. Not because he's so persuasive, but because God is. He says, 
And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. If you're struggling with this, ask God for wisdom. Ask God for courage. Whatever it is that's keeping you from knowing that your life in Christ is supposed to be about becoming Christ-like. Ask God to remove whatever the hindrance is in your life. Even if it's frustration over your ongoing sin. How do we overcome that? Well, you remember, if you are a Christian, your sins are forgiven. This is also a call to patience for believers towards one another. That is what Paul is exhibiting here by not making demands and trusting God to reveal this truth to every one of his children. The last verse for today is verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. We have, as Christians, all attained a certain level of maturity. Some are much more mature than others in Christ. And that's okay. We need that in the church. If everybody was immature and there was nobody mature, you know, that's not a recipe for growth. Okay. Um, wherever you are on the scale, the point Paul's making here is stay the course. Don't turn left or right. Don't look back. In racing terms, it's to say that, that the runner stays in the race. He stays in his lane. He never looks to the left or to the right. He keeps pushing forward. And remember that the Lord will strengthen you. He will provide for you and empower you to do this. And this is not a task that you have been given to do in your own strength because you and I would fail all the time. Honestly, the Bible teaches that God will get you there. You won't get you there. In the first chapter, Philippians 1.6, Paul said, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You see, just run. Run the race and trust God to bring it all to completion. But run. Charles Spurgeon said, The Christian is also likened to a runner in a race. And that is the figure now before us in the text. It is clear that a man cannot be a runner who merely holds his ground, contented with his position. He only runs aright who each moment nears the mark. Let me end with this last verse, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run? but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Are you running? Are you pursuing Christ-likeness? That should be our goal. That should be our one focus. God will do the work, and he will strengthen you for it. Don't look to the past. Strain forward to what lies ahead. Our Lord is coming back. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for today, and we thank you, Lord, for Paul's words here that not only teach us about himself and his mindset about himself, his lack of Christ-likeness, but that he's teaching us, Lord. You are teaching us through your word that our goal, our pursuit should be Christ-likeness, not all the things of the world, 
that the world says are valuable. They will distract us. Whatever those are in the lives of people here this morning, Lord, I pray that you would reveal that to them. Open their eyes to see what it is that may be holding them back from pursuing Christ-likeness. This is not something for monks or some special people. This is every believer. Father, that our goal would be to be like your son, knowing that we cannot do it on our own, that through the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us, through your word and the knowledge that we get there, we know what Christ-likeness even looks like. So we ask for strength, Lord. Give us this desire each day to pursue Christ-likeness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.